0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Goods, of film podcast. This is Brian here, and Dan is with me. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Doing all right. We're here for episode number 95. Very close now to the big one zero zero. And we're kicking off a new theme month. So we've done a few of these in our just about two years on the air. Long term listeners may remember that we have covered a circus month and a young adult literature month. What else? Time loop month. Right. Time loop month. So we've had, I guess, two of these a year. And uh, theme month is when we theme all of our selections around a certain topic or some defining rule. Broadly, they've kind of been sub-genres, maybe you could say. We've toyed with the idea of theming them to a person, but we haven't committed to that
1: yet. Maybe I'll do that for my next one.
0: Yeah, that could be fun. But what I've come up with this time around is form medium, rather than necessarily content, I've put together what I am calling Animonth. This is Animated Features, which came out before 1990, produced by studios other than Disney. I thought that would push us suitably off the beaten path. Animonth. That's good. And I know that Dan is especially a fan of animated films.
1: Yeah, I went through a pretty big phase of reading up on the history of film animation in particular, and I have a lot of ideas for what to pick. I told Brian I could probably extend this theme month as long as it needed to be extended, but I think we've done five episodes for a theme month in the past, so that'll be me picking two. I'm definitely going to have to narrow down a long list, so... But there's just a really deep well of interesting stories, both like the films themselves, but the making of the films and the way they kind of influenced the art form. And I think it's going to be really interesting and really fun. Yeah. And two things about what you just said. I think
0: this is well timed because after five of these entries, number 100 will be our first spooky season episode kicking off October. And I think that's going to be exciting. Whatever you got up your sleeve for that one.
1: Yeah, I got to gotta come up with something suitably reflective of our history.
0: Additionally, I don't think we'll have any problem sprinkling in contenders for this month in the future. You know, you can always slot in another old animated movie. Much as I debated putting together a DCOM theme month. And that didn't materialize, but all of my selections have made it onto the program nonetheless, so. It's just an opportunity for us to constrain ourselves a little bit. Limitations breed creativity. That was the approximate turn of phrase I was looking for. Couldn't come up with it off the tip of my tongue, but that gets the point across. And so, you may be wondering, listeners, what have I selected as our first pick, and in fact, it is not just one film. I have just piled it on poor old Dan this week with three official assignments, because, well, these aren't even just any old run-of-the-mill films. These are three epics of a sort. They are adaptations of The Lord of the Rings Saga by J.R.R. Tolkien, and they're not the Peter Jackson ones. You might think of at first blush. These are the animated films, The Hobbit from 1977, The Lord of the Rings from 1978, and The Return of the King from 1980. So Dan, had you previously experienced any of these?
1: No, I was well aware of the animated Lord of the Rings. I actually didn't know about these. I'm sure I'd read about them, but I couldn't really tell you anything about the Uh, Rankin and Bass ones, and hadn't seen any of them. So this was an eye-opening experience for sure. Yeah,
0: before we dive in, I wanted to talk a little bit about our own personal experiences with Tolkien's work. Neither of us, I would say, are super fans, but I may have had a little bit more exposure. But we'll see. Because these films are actually my first memory of The Lord of the Rings story, And I think I have a good anecdote to go with it, because when I was nine years old, which I guess would have been third grade, 1999, I randomly got really sick with something. And it was like a kind of sickness that I haven't had before or since and had some really strange symptoms because I remember just sitting at the kitchen table and all of a sudden having a really terrible chill, like my whole body convulsing, and just feeling really, really cold. And then I went and took a hot bath, and sitting there in the bath, I was turning blue all over. Like, I was still super, super cold, having these terrible chills in the hot water. And I remember just going to bed, and then, like... I don't know how many days, like four days, maybe being laid up with this fever and chills alternating, just like lapsing in and out of consciousness. And there was a little 12 inch TV up on the wardrobe in the corner of the bedroom. And I remember as I was lapsing in and out of consciousness, I was catching snippets of these films because my parents had rented this animated Lord of the Rings trilogy for me. And my main takeaway was that it was really confusing. And the fact that I was losing a lot of it, like repeatedly passing out did not help me comprehend what was going
1: on. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, there's, an avalanche of names and places and stuff. And like, I think even a, especially lucid and cogent nine-year-old would probably feel a little overwhelmed at this. And I can only imagine little Brian in his fever dream state, just like losing his mind, trying to be like, who the hell is, I don't know, Gondor, like with this character that's on the screen. I don't know anything about this person or what's (laughs) happening or why they're there. (laughs)
0: yeah yeah you said it also gondor is a place not a person exactly there you go (laughs) yeah i mean you captured the spirit exactly and whenever i hear the phrase fever dream now i think of this moment in my life uh and of course then come christmas of 2001 through 2003. That's when the Peter Jackson films were coming out, when I was 11 through 13. And then I think was probably the right age to be exposed to it.
1: Yeah, that's pretty prime age. I I was similar. Of course, I'm just a couple years older than you. And they were a big deal when they were coming out. I I remember that for sure.
0: Yeah, I got into the movies at the time. I... Did see them when they came out in theaters. I saw Return of the King twice, one of only a handful of films I've seen more than once in the theater. And I made an effort at the time to read the books, but not much of one. I got through The Hobbit fine. But then Fellowship of the Ring, I got stuck not very far in because I got to the character Tom Bombadil. So, Dan, are you familiar with the books? Um, I'm familiar. I haven't read
1: any of them except The Hobbit. Okay.
0: All right. So we're pretty much on the same page. (laughs) But I do know Tom Bombadil. Yeah. So Tom Bombadil is this, like, Keebler elf. Uh, Hard to say what he is. Even the biggest Tolkien experts disagree about what Tom Bombadil is supposed to be. But he's this omnipotent forest man who skips around rhyming and it just goes on for pages and pages he completely hijacks the narrative it goes from that scene in the movie where the hobbits run into the ring race and they're you know running through the forest and then he like scoops them up and saves them and then sings for like I don't know how many pages, because I stopped. <laughs> but he's like, Dilly Dom, Mary Dom, Ring-a-Ding-a-Dillo. And it's, seriously, it's stuff like that for lines and lines and
1: lines. The disdainful way that you dis- recited that rhyme was, was something brilliant, Brian.
0: And it's it's telling, frankly, <laughs> that Tom Bombadil does not appear in the Peter Jackson films. And wouldn't you know it, he's not in the rankin Bass films either i'll say in 2018 i picked up an extended edition dvd set at a yard sale for like five bucks the guy said he'd gotten the blu rays so he didn't need the dvds anymore and this was my first time revisiting the movies since they had come out and i watched through these longer versions each one if you're not familiar added like 30 minutes of stuff that wasn't in the even the theatrical release so, like, boosting all of these movies up over three hours and I think Return of the King over four hours. Wow. But, yeah, even in those, no no, Tom Bombadil. Uh, but then in 2020, fall of 2020, I watched again. And it stuck with me at that time. It's like I had the house to myself for a while and just kind of delved into it and I don't know I saw an appeal to it then that I had not before and I thought at some point I'm gonna have to find a reason to talk Tolkien on the podcast
1: yeah um can I can I talk about my experience with Lord of the Rings please do so I never saw fellowship in theaters and I've mentioned my friend Andy on the podcast he was my best friend from kindergarten through third grade until I I moved away from my first house. And even then, we kept up. Uh, We would hang out a few times a year. Usually, he would host a sleepover I would go to. And one time I went over, this was right after the Fellowship of the Ring had come out on, I don't know if it was VHS or DVD, he had it. And he was like, he was the guy who introduced me to Star Wars. I think that might have been the context that it originally came up and also Monty Python and a couple others that were kind of foundational texts for me. And he said, you got to see this. This is like the new shit. This is the stuff you got to see if you're a movie fan. I was like, all right. He's like, it's, it's this awesome, epic adventure. And he put it on and I was like, there's a, a clip of the Simpsons where I can't remember exactly what the context is, But the characters start with really big smiles and then over like what feels like a minute, but it's probably just five or 10 seconds, their smiles very slowly turn to like frowns and not just frowns, but like bored frowns. And that was me watching Fellowship of the Ring. It was just so much stuff happening with names and rules and characters and stuff. And it just did not click for me. And I fell asleep like less than an hour into the movie and got basically nothing out of it. But <laughs> like you, I was determined because, you know, my friend said this was the new shit. This is what you had to watch. And so I did see Two Towers and Return of the King, both in theaters and didn't really know what was going on because I could barely remember a Fellowship. I had a good enough time with the spectacle when I saw it in theaters. I think I even bought one of them on DVD, like when blockbusters were going out of business. It was like, get. 12 DVDs for $8 or something like that. And I I grabbed, I think it was just the two towers. So there was a time when I just had the two towers out of all of the, the Lord of the Rings DVDs in my house. And then, you know, time passed. I never really rewatched them and I got to college and, you know, well, a, I got really into movies. And so I started, it was a thing. I had to have opinions about movies. B you know, I never really had clicked with these. It became one of my corners to say that Lord of the Rings was stupid and overrated. And I'm more or less stuck to that corner. Now, uh, my brothers are crazy into them. Like after I left the house, it became a sensation in our house. And at least Will, I know, adores these movies. And I know Brad and Patrick have watched them too, uh, Jeremy. But I still really haven't, revisited them, except I watched like the first two thirds of Fellowship with um, my wife uh, since my five-year-old daughter was born. Before I started the podcast, but since my five-year-old was born. So, you know, I've revisited it and it still felt just, I don't know, like it just, it's so adaptation-y, just stuff happens. You got to get in every single beat and Character and stuff. it's just it's so rushed, and things don't really click. And here's the case I think against Lord of the Rings. Very briefly, we got a lot to cover, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. There's so goddamn many Deus ex machina's in this story. Characters or species flying out of the sky or appearing that you either didn't know about or completely forgot about, or like you didn't know that this was gonna happen. And the one that still bugs me is, like, it's very meaningful and potent when Gandalf dies. And then he just comes back. Okay, so now death isn't a thing in this series. If you're, like, your number one death, the dude can just come back. That one has always pissed me off. I I think a lot of the beats that bother me, like, if I went back now and, like, watched the story properly and, like, really internalized it and thought a little bit more about it, I would soften up on and I will say, I really like the idea of Lord of the Rings. I like the idea that this studio took this big gamble on a guy like Peter Jackson, who was an up and comer. We easily forget now that he's a household name, gave him $200 million to make three epic movies in New Zealand that were generally considered unfilmable and made like this historic thing that, you know, franchise films are still compared against. Could it ever possibly live up to that? And the answer is usually no. No. I think that's awesome. I think there should be more stuff like that. And I want to love Lord of the Rings, but it just hasn't happened for me. That That's where the story starts. So we'll see if, if my opinions have changed at all as of the watching of these three films.
0: Okay, I'm intrigued. Hopefully the listeners are as well. I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it up, but I do remember the one previous occasion on which I've discussed Lord of the Rings with Dan, which was... Back uh, shortly after we reconnected, when I was doing my 100 favorite movie reviews in 2013, and Dan said to me, you know, you got a lot of trilogies on this list. you got all the Indiana Joneses, well, one through three anyway. you got the Back to the Futures. You've got the original Star Wars trilogy. But you know what you don't have is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I said, well... When it gets right down to it, Dan, those movies are kind of just a lot of walking. And he agreed emphatically. And still, there is too much walking. Yeah. They should ride horses. They have horses at their disposal, they should ride them. And there are other means of transport we can discuss, too. But, I mean, ride a ride a
1: damn horse. That's what <laughs> they did in the real Middle Ages. Right. Uh, again, I, I don't want to belabor this too much, but... I think I probably sent you one of the clips that I would show anyone who wanted to talk Lord of the Rings. I said, we're going to start by I'm going to make you watch this because you have to know that I hold no reverence for Lord of the Rings. And it's um, an argument from the movie Clerks 2. I've sent you that, right?
0: Yes, you did. Well, you quoted it at the time, and I think you've subsequently sent me the
1: link. Well, I'm going to uh, just briefly narrate the line that I think his name is Randall. He's one of the stars of Clerks 2. And uh, he's arguing with, he works at a fast food place and someone else works at the fast food place and then a customer are big Lords of the Rings fans and they're talking about it. And Randall's a big Star Wars fan. And here's what he says. He says, what the fuck happened to this world? There's only one trilogy, you fucking morons. Those fucking Hobbit movies are boring as hell. All it was, was a bunch of people walking. Three movies of people walking to a fucking volcano. Here's the first movie. And then he walks in a line. And here's the second. And then he walks, but he has like a slight stumble. You ready for the third movie? He walks in a line and he mimics taking a ring off and tosses it. Even the trees in those fucking movies walked. And there's a little more to it. He talks about how there's like five different endings for Return of the King and how there's serious gay vibes between Frodo and Sam. And he has some very crass remarks about that, but. I always like that those fucking Hobbit movies are boring as hell. That line has always been inscribed in my brain since I saw that clip.
0: And for what it's worth prior to this week, I had never watched the Peter Jackson Hobbit trilogy that came out about 10 years after the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But I finally did that this week uh, for the first time, just the theatrical releases, because those were free on Amazon prime. They didn't have the extended ones. Um, Those are some long movies. They did not need to make one book into three movies, but I blame Harry Potter, frankly, for letting the studios know that they could get away with breaking one book into multiple movies. You know, they said, you know what? We're not going to end here. We're going to make book seven into movies seven and eight, two movies from one book. And then Hunger Games said, wait a minute, you can do that? And Twilight did it. And then Peter Jackson said... Hold up, guys. (laughs) Hear me out.
1: One book, three movies. And everybody went, oh! (laughs) He could at least lean on his Lord of the Rings credentials for that one. But yeah, every franchise is doing that now. Mission Impossible's next movies are going to be two broken up. Obviously, the Avengers did that. The new Spider-Verse movies are going to do that. Like Having your conclusion be two movies is real stupid. But I guess everybody's doing it. Yeah
0: i mean you can get away with it when you know that the interest is there when you know that that extra movie is eventually going to be
1: made yeah which as we'll talk
0: about even in this episode is not always a guarantee
1: and just saying it's stupid is reductive it's uh it has upsides and downsides so yeah anyways i i will now offer no more prelude and let you uh talk us forward brian
0: yes lots of ground to cover We got a a continent to walk across. So some context for what these things actually are, who Tolkien was. And as I'm sure you're aware, if you know anything at all about this series, there are some diehard fans who could talk your ear off into minute detail. So we'll try not to do that too much. But Tolkien was a linguist. So he studied languages and like that was his biggest passion. He knew all about languages and how they're constructed. Also, he was a folklore enthusiast. He studied mythology and legends. And he has stated that one of his goals for his saga was to create a mythology for England that had perhaps been lost in the Dark Ages. And so he built this story world, this fictional realm off the basis of existing old English works and specifically there's a lot of Beowulf in his stories and you can really see it in the Hobbit which this go around is the most I've thought about the Hobbit specifically probably ever in my life I have really been more familiar with the Lord of the Rings installments have you read Beowulf Dan
1: I read it in high school And I remember basically nothing about it, except there's battle scenes at the end where it describes billions of monkeys fighting each other. I'm wondering if you're thinking of
0: Gilgamesh or something. Oh,
1: shit. I don't remember any monkeys in Beowulf. No, you're right. I'm thinking of Gilgamesh, (laughs) but I did also read Beowulf. I would get those ones mixed up, which they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So I don't know why I got them mixed up. Gilgamesh is a little further east. That's right. Yeah. It's coming back a place. I wish there were more monkeys in Beowulf. No, anyways. It couldn't hurt. Monkeys are funny.
0: (laughs) But um, I remember back in the day I read the Wishbone Beowulf chapter book. And then I did read the, the book in high school. And then in 2007, Robert Zemeckis did a motion capture Beowulf movie. So, of course, I had to go see that in 3D. But... Definitely, I was recognizing story elements now revisiting The Hobbit. With this mindset that these stories were supposed to represent, like ancient English myths, it kind of adds some meaning to what we're seeing and hearing. Hobbits, especially, are kind of an avatar, a representation of Englishmen that they are off on the western edge of Middle-earth, which, if you didn't know, is not the whole planet. Middle-earth is a continent. It is the the stand-in for Europe. So the whole planet is called Arda. And, and so Arda is like an ancient earth in the primordial mists. And what I have learned more recently is that you're supposed to understand that it eventually becomes our real
1: earth. I spent maybe a half hour on the Tolkien wiki over the past week. And it's it, whenever you look something up, it's got some line in there where it's like, this is the fourth generation of the song of Ea. And you're like, I don't know what literally any of those things are. And so you start clicking on them. And there really is like a whole encyclopedia of made up stuff, to put it bluntly. Right. Yes, yeah,
0: so you go down and down the rabbit hole and everything is more hyperlinks.
1: The the thing I was going to say is uh, I, I read one of, in one of his last interviews, uh, Tolkien said that he thinks we might be in the seventh age now. So apparently the these stories take place in the third age. But like you and me as we live, Brian, are in the seventh age.
0: Yep. I had that bullet point down. So this is a world that's in the process of slowly becoming our world.
1: Okay, gotcha.
0: And so, like, you can see elements of different cultures we would recognize kind of represented in the different races and different languages of Middle-earth. Like, Elvish is just Finnish, which is why it's so weird. I mean, it's not identical to Finnish. It is a constructed language, but it has a lot of Finnish in it. And, you know, they're supernatural Scandinavian beauties. And then the dwarves, who are without a homeland and are skilled metalsmiths and are perhaps obsessed with money. Uh, who might they be, I wonder? <laughs> I'm guessing you're going with Jews on that one. Yes, I've read that the dwarvish language of Kuzdul was very inspired by Hebrew. But... Just to say that it's a mix of real-world influences going into this. And as the world progresses, just as Dan said, the things that happen in Lord of the Rings end the Third Age. And yeah, Tolkien said maybe we're in the the sixth or the seventh. Uh, But a lot of events in Tolkien's own life also influenced the direction that the stories took. And people have made a lot of the fact that Tolkien, like many other Europeans of the age, fought in World War One, and this was an experience that forced him to leave his comfortable home and trek eastward across the European continent, where he faced carnage and darkness on an industrialized scale that was unprecedented in the world's history, and then had to return changed and with the feeling that he had to write a chronicle of his trip. And broadly, that's the trajectory of both the Hobbit
1: and Lord of the Rings trilogies. A companion thought to that is that Lord of the Rings in particular, which came out after World War II, it kind of even evolved that further. And, you know, obviously a lot of things changed with with World War II as well. Things got even more industrial. And in particular, what was the big scary human existence altering thing that was introduced in world war ii well of course it was one power to rule them all one thing that could change everything in the blink of an eye and that was the a-bomb and that you know i think he refuted this idea but i think at least subconsciously it's there this idea that uh there's this one dark power that is more powerful than everything else, and we as a people must figure out how to kind of squelch it out rather than let it rule us or, even worse, destroy us. Yeah, and whoever's got the weapon is going to rule the world. Exactly, yeah, even if they intend to be good. But, yeah,
0: he put out The Hobbit in 1937, and it was kind of more intended for a child audience. Then when his publishers wanted a sequel... And he was putting together all these ideas for Lord of the Rings, which was going to be more epic, more adult, more complicated. He had to kind of retool some of the things in The Hobbit, and it got reissued with some revisions to better connect between the two. But then, like you said, after World War II, Lord of the Rings came out in three volumes between 1954 and 1955. And in so doing kind of birthed the modern concept of the high fantasy genre. I'm sure you can refute that. You know a lot about books, but uh, certainly it was hugely influential, and works since have shamelessly pilfered from it. And in particular, it was pretty much the basis for Dungeons & Dragons.
1: Yeah, pretty much every fantasy writer is either... Writing in the lineage of Tolkien or writing as a reaction to Tolkien. And, uh, you know, I think it might not be quite so explicit as that, because obviously there's been a whole corpus of works and traditions that have built up around that subgenres and ideas. But it's kind of crazy how many concepts that were introduced with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are, are still deeply ingrained in fantasy. I mean, even just the genre of fantasy being this medieval epic quest derives from that to some extent. Right. And something
0: which is not perhaps widely known, I mean, it's fairly known, but it's not maybe the first thing that comes to mind. There is a lot of poetry in these books. We mentioned Tom Bombadil, but like every scene, somebody will stop and say, do you know any songs about what we're experiencing here? And somebody will bring to mind this ancient song that will just stop everything in its tracks for a little while. And like, even the manly men like Aragorn are super well-versed in this stuff, this lyric poetry, and don't need much encouragement to share. (laughs) and this is something that comes across to varying degrees in all the different adaptations. It's like uh, the literary
1: version of a musical.
0: Exactly. I think we also got to shout out a couple other Hobbit adaptations that have come out. Dan brought these to my attention yesterday. There was actually one from 1966, which was also animated, so of course we had to both watch it. This one was interesting. It was only 12 minutes long, and the guy who had the rights to make it made it so that he wouldn't lose the rights. He he started on it in the last month that he had the rights, and it's like drawings on just pieces of paper and the camera is like swinging around. It's It's not really animation
1: per se. I was actually a time crunch this week, and although I'm usually the overachiever, I did not catch up with either of those. Even though I s- sent you the info about them, so I did not catch up with that one, unfortunately. Although it sounds like maybe I didn't miss the 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 deepest adaptation.
0: Oh man, I said, "Did you watch the '66 Hobbit?" I think you probably watched the '77 Hobbit that I assigned, and thought that's what I was talking oh, about. Oh
1: but- yeah, I thought you you re- I thought you meant had you seen it yet? Gotcha. Okay. Okay.
0: No, because in this one, what's bizarre, and if it wasn't this bizarre, I probably would skip over it entirely, but all the names are wrong, and I don't know why. <laughs> they call the dragon slag instead of smog. <laughs> they call Gollum Galoom, And they call trolls groans. And Goblin's Grablins. (laughs) Wow. And I don't understand. Also, there's a random love interest for Bilbo. Interesting. Maybe to make him not gay. I don't know. But they just randomly threw that in there. And the whole thing is only 12 minutes long. But honestly, after three three hour Peter Jackson films, it felt like a breezy, blissful lark. (laughs) Uh, I'll take 12 minutes any day. But let's talk about what I officially assigned, which are these films from the late 70s and early 80s. And this was really the boom time for fantasy. It took a little over a decade, I think, for Tolkien to burst into the mainstream and really be popular with people beyond the nerdiest of the nerds and so I think it was 77 maybe it was a little bit before then that Dungeons and Dragons premiered and I think it got big on like college campuses I mean big in quotation marks but I think there was a realization that nerds had money and (laughs) So, I mean, we had a we had space fantasy with Star Wars, uh, but also around this time, you know, Dungeons and Dragons was at least big enough that we got the Tom Hanks scare film Mazes and Monsters. Jim Henson got in on it in the early 80s with Dark Crystal. And I just think it was in the zeitgeist at the time to do these high
1: fantasy epics. It's interesting They, to some extent they have come back in the past couple of years with definitely the zeitgeist of Game of Thrones. And then you had Wheel of Time and the Witcher TV series and the new Game of Thrones just started and there's going to be a Lord of the Rings TV series coming up.
0: Yep. Oh, speaking of fads, you could really tell that the, peter jackson hobbit movies were made in 3d everybody was always poking the screen and throwing (laughs) stuff it was very early 2010s so you you know that i regretted not getting the 3d blu-rays oh yeah it's like oh wait a minute
1: that's pretty funny
0: you got dwarves flying all over the place in barrels it's like this could be coming out at me and i'm missing out
1: why are you even wasting your time yeah
0: Exactly. Well, it was free. It was on Amazon Prime, so it wasn't too much of a blow to the pocketbook, but it did eat up a lot of time. (laughs) But let's talk about what we're actually here to talk about. So specifically, The Hobbit from 1977 comes to us from Rankin Bass, which you will likely know as the Christmas Special Company. They of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, and marginally more niche entries like Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Year Without a Santa Claus. If you want to go deep into the catalog, you might come up with something like Rudolph's Shiny New Year. But lo and behold, they made Tolkien adaptations.
1: Yeah, I've been revisiting those, the Christmas ones with my daughters, and I personally have found them Not particularly appealing in adulthood. Just sensorially very tacky and grating. Just a lot of loud noises and the songs are kind of earwormy, but in an unpleasant way where I kind of want them to be out of my head. But we'll see if that's a recurring theme for these.
0: Well, now I know I got to put Rankin Bass Christmas Special on the docket come December. I generally enjoy them. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of it is nostalgia, but I I like the voice cast that comes up time and again. Lots of good performances from Paul Frees in roles like Burgermeister Meisterburger. Right, man, Keenan Wynn as the Winter Warlock. All the best Christmas villains come from Rankin Best specials. I mean, I guess you gotta you gotta give the Grinch his due, and that was a Chuck Jones special. What about that,
1: Dan? Where does where does that fall for you? How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah, uh, terrific. Uh, okay, I love th- I love that one. That's a uh, exceptionally good. Okay, cool. Just uh, doing a a gauge yeah. set.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, the magician Professor Hinkle from Frosty the Snowman. Very influential on me personally. I-, I would hold him up as a role model, right up there with Professor Fate. <laughs> But anyhow, we got lots of ground to cover. And this 1977 Hobbit, luckily, is only 77 minutes long. Surprisingly concise. Mercifully short. It's not 12 minutes. Not that brisk, but shorter than just about anything else to come out of this legendarium. And it does make heavy use of the original verses by Tolkien. So there's a lot of poetry and music in this.
1: It it opens with this song, like, what is it? The Greatest Adventure or The Greatest Adventurer or something like that? Yeah, The Greatest Adventure is What Lies Ahead. And I did not like the music in The Hobbit. Um, I thought pretty much every song was really chintzy and annoying. I, just this opening, because it, it opens with that song, was putting me in a bad mood as we were getting started. <laughs> All right, right out the gate. Um, So
0: this song is not in the book, but just about every other one in this special is. Um, I think they did do a record release of this soundtrack, and Ralph Bakshi, who we'll talk about in a minute, was on the same page as you, Dan. He didn't like these songs. He said, when I do it, there's not going to be any songs. What's your take on the music in The Hobbit? So... I think it's the best use of the verse from the books. Like, of an attempt to pull this element into an adaptation, I think this is the best job. Uh, But your mileage is definitely going to vary. I think there's a reason Tolkien put all the poetry in there. I can't exactly say what that reason is, other than he was probably trying to draw on this tradition of epic... Poetry, and you know he knew a lot about languages and the history of languages, and I think that has to do with it. But it, it can really drag you down.
1: No, I mean I think there's something to that. I think it's kind of cool that, it, given that this thing is here, that by which I mean in the books when you read it, that there it, there are these long snatches of a verse. Um, it's kind of cool for the movie to do homage to that, even if. I personally didn't get a big kick out of it. I I kind of at least respect the vision for it.
0: Mm -hmm. And now we're going to tell the story of these stories. I'm going to be concise where I can so that you can still follow the thread, though. So when it kicks off, we've got Bilbo Baggins. He's a hobbit. This is basically a small human, about a, a half size human. Dungeons and Dragons called them halflings to avoid legal issues. And he lives in a hobbit hole, which is this comfortable little house that's underground. He lives in a place called the Shire, where everything is green and peaceful, and hobbits love staying in their houses. That's just the general hobbit rule. They're homebodies. But his domestic bliss gets upended when this wizard in a big blue hat shows up with a passel of dwarves and with... Very little reasoning behind why he picked Bilbo, why they came all this way. They say Bilbo needs to join them to slip across the country and fight a dragon who has ousted them from their home in a mountain fortress. So the group of dwarves used to live there, but then the dragon attacked, kicked everybody out, and now it's been a few years that the dragon has been holed up
1: in this place when i was a kid and i even uh, reread some of it out loud to my my daughters i really like this opening it just always stuck with me this image of this dude hanging around doing his his normal routine and out comes this weirdo wanderer and then all of a sudden like the weirdo wanderer's buddies are filling his kitchen and you're like oh we're going to go on some grand adventure that's going to change your life and it's just a really fun setup it's like uh I, I don't know i like it and i feel like the movie i mean the movie's got to rush through everything but i i was bummed we didn't dwell on this scene a little bit more in the movie and
0: bilbo actually agrees after some convincing that he is gonna go he's going to be their so-called burglar and assist them on their journey to reclaim their homeland and kick out the dragon And we got some good vocal performances here, I thought. Certainly some recognizable names and voices. So Hans Conried, which is a name I've mentioned a few times in my picks, plays Thorin Oakenshield, the leader of the dwarves. And you may remember he was Dr. T in The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Maybe most famous for being Captain Hook in Disney's Peter Pan. But he's not even our only Captain Hook in this movie, because Cyril Richard plays the Elf King Elrond, and there's a scene where they talk to each other. So you got two Captain Hooks, one of whom was Captain Hook in 1953, and one of whom was Captain Hook in 1954, talking
1: to each other. The Hook multiverse. Yeah. It reminds me of, I recently re-listened to our episode where we talked about Titanic. And the British one of those, I think it was A Night to Remember. And that had three different cues from the James Bond series. And I wish we could have talked about a Q multiverse a little bit more in that episode. But at least we have our Captain Hook multiverse here.
0: Right. All the reason that we need to return to Titanic someday. But a couple other recognizable voices we have paul freeze as one of the dwarves you could definitely recognize oh that dude is boris badenov from bullwinkle mm. among many others uh the ghost host from disney's haunted mansion i also caught Thoral ravenscroft he of the beautiful booming baritone voice he sang you're a mean one mr grinch and he's here singing again As the orcs, you might not expect the orcs to sing, but in the Rankin-Bass world, they do. And both orc music numbers are like disco, which I was not expecting.
1: No, Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually. The disco singing orcs, it should have just leaned into it and have like disco balls coming down and glittering lights. Yeah, they should have been like roller skating like in Xanadu. (laughs) The... The orc's real banger is yet to come, though, I would say. Yeah.
0: I mean, their their first entry is pretty good and has that disco element, but the finale orc number kicks it up to 11. But I thought overall this 1977 film did a good job of hitting all the key events of the book while maintaining a brisk pace, and, and maybe it was too quick. Uh, what are your thoughts on
1: that, Dan? I, I think it should have been... Uh... A 93 minute movie not a 77 minute movie. i think that would have served it well and still could have been a brisk feature film but no i, I agree with you it's it's coherent it hits all the the beats and i think to the movie's advantage this rankin and bass tone really matches the hobbit's tone it's like it's a little bit lighter but you can get in this stabs of darkness but there's just like a, a joviality to it um kind of like a, not maybe whimsy, but just a a grand old adventure without all that much darkness to it that, that fits the style that they're doing. Yeah,
0: I agree. And as Bilbo and the dwarves go along, they run into a long series of episodic threats that come and go. We're not going to be too comprehensive. I will recommend, if you decide you want to get into this stuff a little more, there are some very dedicated Tolkien YouTubers. Check out Nerd of the Rings if you want to know more. But some things they encounter, there's a group of trolls that try to eat them. There's a group of giant spiders that try to eat them. Basically, they keep getting captured and then somebody has to get them out of their
1: captivity multiple times. We get some of the Deus Ex Machina problem here where half the time the problem the problem solved because, oh, Gandalf came here to save the day. He had been gone, but now he's back and he freed us. And it's like, okay, that I guess that's how you got free that time. Sure. The wizard came. A wizard did it. Yeah. I thought that was especially
0: silly with the trolls because I'm pretty sure in the book, and it happened in the Peter Jackson movies, Bilbo like, starts coming into his own there, because he gets the trolls arguing with each other. And that's what wastes the time, and that's why they're still bickering when the sun comes up. But in this one, yeah, Gandalf randomly shows up. He hadn't been there, and then he lets everybody free. Uh, Some other run-ins that they get, they do encounter a group of orcs, although in The Hobbit they're called goblins. And they even get captured by elves at one point, which is a little bit different presentation of the elves than come later. They're kind of just as territorial and surly as anybody else here in The Hobbit. And as the adventure continues, Bilbo gets a little more agency. He definitely shows more courage and cunning than the dwarfs do. The dwarfs are basically just nameless, faceless... They're just a group. And emphasizing that is they all have silly rhyming names. I'll say, having spent nine hours with them in the Peter Jackson films, I did get more of a sense of who was who, but not much more.
1: Yeah, one one thing I remember from reading the book, uh, one thing I really liked about it is it started out just like they they were all blended together. And just as the adventure kind of really built, uh, you also got to know those other characters a little bit more. So kind of just as you were feeling like you were out seeing this wider world, you also got some of the richness of, oh, this pair of rhyming dwarves has this personality trait, where this pair has this other one. Um, So I kind of always liked that about the book. And I do think that's one casualty of the short running time here is you don't really get all that much sense of, any of the dwarves' personality, except, I guess, the leader fella.
0: Yeah, Thorin is the one that gets developed. And they're all ugly here. The, what did you think of the animation overall of this one?
1: Yeah. Uh, man, I said I started sour. Once they started doing stuff, I got less sour on this one. Because I really liked it. I, I was surprised how much I liked it. There's something about the character designs that they're like not too cartoony they're like kind of you said it ugly and something striking about it it's like got all these lines on it it was like an etching or something like that on top of these crazy beautiful watercolor backgrounds that just look like something that would be a painting like you get it i don't know you'd see hanging in an art gallery and man i was really digging the look at this one um, that really as stuff started happening, even though it was kind of rushed and we got to see all these locales and creatures and adventures, um, my rating was going up as we were watching. Okay,
0: well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Just the look of the dwarves, I specifically, I was not fond of. They're super wrinkly. All of them are old, which, I mean, I can't speak to Tolkien's intention, but in the Peter Jackson ones, they were definitely more of a mix of ages like some young dwarves some old dwarves here they're all like octogenarians
1: yeah i mean i don't know it it clicked for me it was i liked that they had just this kind of slightly grotesque look it was like they were they weren't just cartoony buddies they were like creatures of their own but yeah i can see it's a little off putting it is definitely Not visually pleasing, I would say. Sure. I did like the beautiful landscapes, as you said.
0: Uh, And the character designs of Bilbo and Gandalf I liked a little more. We have Orson Bean playing Bilbo, by the way. I know him from he was in a Twilight Zone or something. I, I, I recognize the name. Anyhow, one moment that I remember from when I was nine years old from this one is they're going through the spooky forest of Mirkwood and they're getting lost. Their minds are playing tricks on them. And Bilbo decides he's going to climb a tree to see if he can see up over the canopy of the forest and help them find their way. And when he pokes his head up over the tree line, he sees this huge flock of butterflies. And he has a line about how he remembered his home far away and He wondered if he would ever see it again. And for a moment, he wondered if he wanted to. I thought that was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. It must be in the book because it happened in Peter Jackson, too, with a little less poetic resonance. But it was there. And I I remember that even lapsing in and out of my fever dream, that stuck with me. Nice, Bilbo's burgling and sneaking gets a big boost when he stumbles into a cave and none of the dwarves see him go in there. I think he falls through a crack or something and ends up down there and he comes across a ring. This turns out to belong to a creature Uh, indiscriminate at first. We learn more about him as the story goes along, but this is Gollum or Galloom, as the 1966 film said, which which reminded me of when they're calling Gungans Gungas in the behind the scenes footage for planning Star Wars Episode One. It's going to be great.
1: It's going to be great. Gungas have been on my brain recently. I've been talking about them a lot at work. <laughs> I don't know if it was on on pod. At work. This comes up. Uh, I forget why it came up. We're talking about Star Wars for some reason the Goongas and nobody knew what I was talking about. So I looked like a wacko, but
0: (laughs) yeah, but the ring, if you put it on, makes you invisible, obviously a good tool for somebody who needs to sneak around. And once Bilbo's got it, Gollum is never going to let up. He is going to jealously seek it.
1: And I like this Gollum. It's more monstery and, I like they captured the tick of the reason he's called Gollum is he just always is wandering around saying Gollum, Gollum, um, which was always very striking to me when I read the book.
0: Yeah, it's described as like a coughing sound in his throat, so I guess it's supposed to sound phlegmy, but he looks froggy. He looks like some kind of amphibian in the Rankin-Bass versions. Eventually, everybody's reunited, and they finally make their way to the town at the base of the mountain where the dragon is ensconced. And they make their way up the mountain. They've followed, you know, the Goonies' clues on their treasure map to get there at the right moment that they can unlock the side of the mountain and sneak in. And when everybody's standing there on the precipice, they say, Okay, Bilbo, you go in. And, man... Uh, that seems like kind of a bitch move, frankly. <laughs> it's like, dude, this is your treasure, dwarves. You're gonna make Bilbo your patsy here? He's he's saved you time and time again, and maybe that's why they're doing it. But, like, this is a big request. Just, hey, there's a killer dragon in there. Go in by yourself. Right. But he, he does, and luckily, Bilbo, unbeknownst <laughs> to the others can become invisible and so he goes in and he starts talking to the dragon and the dragon has an interesting look in this it seemed very mammalian to me it's like furry it almost has a mane
1: yeah i thought it looked kind of like a cat yeah i agree and a, a real interesting visual trait of the dragon is its eyes are glowing so you can see where it's looking which amplifies this sense that Bilbo's got to be very careful to not get spotted by smog.
0: And something I didn't really think about until I watched the Peter Jackson one is walking around on a pile of coins is not the ideal environment to be in when you're invisible. Seems Mm. like you'd be really easy to find stepping around in anything that shifts and crunches.
1: That's a good point.
0: Not too much of an issue here, a little more of an issue in the Peter Jackson movie. Gotcha. But Bilbo takes some of the treasure, sneaks out to tell the dwarves what he saw. Because one of the things he saw was that there's a weak spot on Smog's underbelly. But now that Smog knows that people are sneaking around, taking his treasure, he's pissed. And he tears out of the mountain to go attack the town at the bottom of the mountain. Because he thinks this intrusion must have something to do with them. He starts blowing smoke and fire and terrorizing the settlement. Uh, Luckily, word of Bilbo's discovery makes it to this human archer down in the town. And he is able to slay the dragon. But during... The fight, when the dragon was away, the dwarves were able to get down into the treasure horde and fortify it. So they're home and happy as far as they're concerned. The mission is done. But that's not the end of the book. Because we get this, like, power vacuum struggle. I just finished watching Better Call Saul. And so I had uh, Breaking Bad on the mind, as I always do. And this was a recurring theme there. It's like you take out a powerful drug dealer and all is not peaceful because now everybody's going to scrabble to try to claim that powerful spot of authority and, and fight amongst themselves to see who gets to claim that honor. And sure enough, that's what happens here. Everybody comes out of the woodwork. the The people from the human town show up and the elves from the elf town show up. And, of course, this dragon accumulated his treasure from many sources over many years. And so everybody's got kind of a hereditary claim on some share of the gold. And Thorin, the Dwarf King, is not hearing that. He says, yo, stay out. This is the Dwarf Mountain. Deal with it. And Bilbo's like, come on, dude. I did like 90% of this work. And I say it's cool to share the gold. <laughs> so there's a lot of power politics going on. Bilbo kind of extricates himself from this conflict. But the three forces that are here already say they're going to go to war. But wouldn't you know what? The orcs show up next. And so all the quote unquote good guys band together to fight the orcs, which to me seems a little lopsided already. It's three against one poor orcs all they want to do is disco dance (laughs) and then it gets more lopsided because what finally tips things in the scale and gives us the battle of five armies that named the third peter jackson film is the eagles show up and man if there is a deus ex machina in lord of the rings the most frequent offender is these giant eagles It's like they always swoop in literally to save the day and you're left wondering, why don't they just do that all the time? Right. We should just use eagles for everything. Because something that even all the super dedicated Tolkien scholars will emphasize is that an air force is a total game breaker in
1: medieval warfare.
0: Like any medieval... Military power would give up anything to have an air force.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Especially when your number one goal is to transport a thing from point A to point B that takes a lot of walking. Exactly. But the dust settles.
0: Seven of the dwarves have been killed, which only three die in the book. I was not expecting this much bloodshed in the Christmas Company Hobbit. <laughs> But Thorin has seen some of the error of his ways. He apologizes to Bilbo for being so stubborn and ultimately leading to his own death. But Bilbo gets to go home with a chest full of treasure and he returns to the Shire, a changed hobbit. Like something that has always struck me about these stories is how do you go back to your own little corner of the world and live amongst these deliberately, unworldly people
1: when, for you, the veil has been lifted? I don't know. It's hard to say. And I think that is a theme that people have faced in real life, particularly people in Tolkien's shoes who go to war, see violence, see the world, and then come home and have to do the dishes every night, you know, and like, I don't know, hang out in the same suburbs all the time. I think there's some resonance to that, although... I don't know how much these types of movies are, are able to really capture that that resonance. But my, my take on the end of the Hobbit has always been, I just like breeze through everything after the dragon dies for me, once the dragon dies and mirrored with when the ring goes in the volcano, that's when the story is pretty much over for me. And it's like, let's we can do the, the conclusion to see where the world is. But when, Like, a solid quarter of this movie happens after the dragon dies. I'm starting to zone out a little bit. Right.
0: Yeah, I remembered it ending with the dragon dying, too. But little did I know, in the Peter Jackson trilogy, you got another three hours after that point.
1: Yeah, so is that... Basically, the third movie is entirely post dragon or mostly post dragon. So the dragon dies in like the first ten minutes. Gotcha. It
0: starts with the
1: the fight that kills the dragon. Okay, wow, yeah, that would be hard for me to get through. <laughs> it's a good. I bet you know what? I bet you they wanted to kill it at the end of the second one, but they realized nobody would go see the third one if the dragon had already died.
0: I think you're exactly right. Uh, one interesting thing about those Peter Jackson Hobbits, though. So, Martin Freeman plays the young Bilbo, uh, Jim of the British office, among other things. Yep. Oh, okay. The
1: Jim character named Tim.
0: Yes. And he also plays Watson in the Sherlock, the recent, somewhat recent British adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes story on TV. He was Watson. And so, who do they cast as the dragon but Benedict Cumberbatch? Sherlock Holmes yeah and so it's it's kind of funny kind of ironic to see them back together again in this adversarial relationship right so that was interesting still too long didn't need to be three movies but it had its moments
1: I like Martin Freeman Uh, his presence alone is if I'm going to be spending nine hours nine excessive hours with one actor you could do worse than Martin Freeman yeah he was good casting Not quite Tom Hanks. That would have been a very different movie. (laughs) And then there's also this kind of dumb, maybe there's more adventures having to do with this ring in the last 10 seconds of The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. Something which obviously
0: was not known when The Hobbit came out in 1937, but was definitely known in 1977 when... We knew what was coming. Obviously, the books were out, but in the very next year, there was actually a movie version of Lord of the Rings coming. Not from Rankin-Bass. And I didn't read too much about how this came about, but this just seems like chaos. That there's these adaptations coming from various people, and it seems like nobody knows who's doing what. Uh, A little bit of
1: an oddity. Check out part two to hear coverage of Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings and Rankin and Bass's Return of the Kingdom.